Today I'm speaking with Sarita Gupta and Erica Smiley about their new book, The Future We Need, Organizing for a Better Democracy in the 21st Century, that weaves together stories of real working people and the struggle to build collective bargaining power as a central element in the effort to build a healthy democracy. Smiley is the executive director of Jobs with Justice and is a longtime organizer and movement leader, spearheading strategic organizing and policy interventions for nearly 15 years. And Sarita is the vice president of U.S. programs for the Ford Foundation, overseeing the future of work and workers' programs, with more than two decades of experience building coalitions and policies that protect and advance the rights of workers. So I know you're very busy on your uh, pre-book launch tour, so I really appreciate both of your times. And one of the aspects of your book, you weave a lot of stories of real working people and some of the struggles that they're facing to provide the reader a number of different uh, types of situations that workers can find themselves in. And Smiley, you write about your journey into labor organizing and how you felt at the beginning like an imposter in the movement. And as someone who personally has always been an unorganized worker myself, could you talk about your process of becoming a labor, a labor organizer and some of the problems of this othering that happens within these the labor unions, and which is one of the many mentalities and cultural behaviors keeping the ranks of organized labor small? Yeah, Evan, I'm so glad we're starting with this because um, it really is the, the crux of, of the intervention that Sarita and I are trying to make with this. Um, so yeah, it's true. So I originally grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina, and North Carolina has one of the lowest union membership levels in the country, if not the lowest. And uh, so I didn't grow up fully understanding what unions were in real time. I'd certainly understood them in the context of history. I'd seen eyes on the prize and, you know, the struggle of the sanitation workers in Memphis. But um, the lived reality of what it meant to be able to negotiate standards at any given worksite were just foreign to me. But at the same time, I grew up around people who were in active collective struggle. And in fact, you know, I talk about in the book how my first, my first uh, action happened with, uh, in solidarity with Kmart workers who were black women, some at our church, some who went to churches everywhere else, but our, you know, as a teenager. And my church mobilized in support of these workers who were fighting for basic dignity and respect. And, you know, at the time, I didn't know that that was a union campaign. It ended up, it was, it was with Act Two. And, um, but I understood that uh, what they were experiencing wasn't right, that there were both race and gender elements that were um, keeping them in an exploited position, and that only through collective action could we overcome those challenges. And they ended up winning, which taught me a really big lesson, uh, that collective action gets the goods, for sure. But I think as I uh, grew and developed and became more acquainted with the, the broader movement and labor unions and kind of the current form, uh, not just in a, as a historical uh, uh, institution, that uh, I realized that this is something that all people should have, particularly that my people, Southern black people, should have uh, in order to uh, live dignified lives, in order to be re fully integrated into this thing we like to call democracy. And uh, I think that I can certainly articulate a lot better now than I could when I was a 16-year-old, right? But that there's, there's something to say about uh, collective bargaining being a pathway towards democracy, being a pathway towards 
the majority of people being able to engage in everyday decision making. That that's not just a political project that happens once a year when we vote, but that that's actually uh, a daily practice that should happen both in the context of civil society as well as in our workplaces. A collective bargaining agreement is just a policy for the workplace. And that we needed to be able to expand not only access to traditional forms of collective bargaining, but to really apply the framework of collective bargaining to employment and economic relationships of this era, uh, not just of what was going on in, in 1935. And so despite all the othering and the experience that I had of some uh, organizational leaders, you know, questioning my credibility as a labor leader and all that kind of stuff, I actually found myself through my own process pretty transformed and and so clear that this is where I need to be as a Southerner and as a black person um, because like when I think about the framework of democracy and the last moment that the, the nation was pointing in that direction, I think about the struggle of formerly enslaved people when they walked off the plantation. I think about the Reconstruction Amendments um, that ultimately uh, started to attempt to point us in the direction of integrating society into a multiracial democracy, whether it was the 13th Amendment to abolish slavery and forced labor, the 14th Amendment, which started to define citizenship, the 15th Amendment, which started to define who could vote, that these are the lanes through which we are trying to build a multiracial democracy. And so, you know, all of our efforts, whether it's the New Deal, the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, they're building on those, on the, that framework, but we're far from done. And uh, we can't just see this as a siloed issue of union rights or civil rights allies or women's rights allies, but that at the core of being able to build a healthy democracy is a, a fairly clear, united movement um, to ultimately expand the majority's participation and decision making. And collective bargaining is clearly the pathway of, uh, towards that in the economic arena. I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate that you do provide the kind of foundational tool of collective bargaining, but it's within the framework that anti-labor means anti-democracy. And uh, before we get too far ahead, I do want to talk a little bit about Sarita's background as well. And Sarita, you share your experience growing up in Rochester. It's the beginning of deindustrialization. I'm from Cleveland, lived in Chicago, grew up in Michigan. And so I saw a lot of the deindustrialization and how that was often used to split and divide people as well. And could you talk a little bit about your experience growing up facing racism, anti-immigrant ignorance, and then how you found your voice and how it kind of radicalized you into getting into this movement? Yes, thanks, Evan, for having us and happy to share. Um, so as you said, you know, my family immigrated to Rochester, New York um, in 1975. And we were one of the early Indian families um, in the area. And really, we immigrated largely because there was a shortage of physicians in rural towns in the US. So immigration doors had been opened up. So we moved to Rochester into Kodak City, like literally as it's known as Kodak City. Um, and really, when I was like eight years old was the first round of major layoffs that Kodak did. And Kodak is a ma major employer in, in that city. Um, so we saw the first round of layoffs happening. And um, what I write about in the book is my experience growing up with kids and watching their families struggle. And these are families who had worked for generations at Kodak. And Kodak was the type of employer that, you know, 
they didn't have a union, but it was an employer who did provide a lot of really great, good wages, good benefits, you know, paid college tuition, you know, paid leave, like all kinds of benefits um, uh, that were really important um, in the community. So when the layoffs began in 1983 and then onwards, um, we really saw a decline in my neighborhood. I lived one town over from Kodak Park, which was the industrial facility. And um, I watched how devastating that was for families. I mean, just to give numbers here, at the height of, you know, Kodak had 60,000 employees in Rochester. Today, 4,500 workers. I mean, that is a serious decline. So I watched unemployment go up. I watched friends, really good friend of mine, her mom had worked there for years. Her grandparents had worked there. Um, she was laid off, ended up getting a job as a school bus driver, um, making much less money and very limited benefits. And just watched families like my friends really struggle to maintain a middle-class life. And actually, you know, I, I talk about this more than I, I wrote about it, but my friend who I'm ref referencing here went on to college. She figured out, she worked her way through college and got out because she saw that Rochester wasn't a place for a future for her. But unfortunately, she was very atypical. Most of my friends' families stayed in Rochester. Some went to other manufacturing jobs that eventually left, but most of them went into low-wage service um, sector jobs. And um, the thing that I that really motivates me is at a really young age, I just could not make meaning of how is it possible that there could be people who families, generations have built this major company and all of a sudden they've lost everything. They've lost their job. They've lost any kind of financial security and no voice in what the jobs of the future in Rochester could look like. Um, and that really early on planted for me, something's got to change here, how important collective bargaining rights is, how important a voice and agency is. But the other thing, Evan, that has become clear to me as I've gotten older is, you know, I've watched Facebook feeds of some of my friends from school, how easy it was for them throughout my childhood to scapegoat that, you know, the reason this was happening was because of immigrants and because of people of color taking jobs and opportunities away and how easy it was for them to decide that they couldn't trust the government, they couldn't trust employers. And in fact, sadly enough, I know people from Rochester who were at the Capitol on January 6th, you know, really expressing their anger and frustration. And so I think Smiley and I really felt the need to write this book from our different perspectives and from my perspective because um, th they felt left behind. And a vast majority of people today in the United States feel left behind. Um, they don't feel like they have the kind of respect dignity and agency that they want in their lives. And that's what we have to change. And we do, I really believe collective bargaining rights is so essential for how we actually change um, that reality for workers and how we build a more healthy democracy moving forward. Thank you for sharing that. And the concept of collective bargaining is sometimes just out of the mind of most people, because when you look at the amount of people in unions, the public sector is, I think, around 20-ish percent and the private sector is under 10 percent. But like 
nationwide, it's under 10% of people are in unions and people don't understand about what is collective bargaining. So, um, Smiley, if I could begin with you, what is your experience with collective bargaining? If you're trying to explain to a new audience what is collective bargaining and why it's important, could you provide a little bit of an overview? Yeah, this is this is so true um, because, you know, you ask most people about bargaining uh, and they automatically assume you're at, you're talking about a discount, like at the dollar store or something. Um, and so it's a little bit outside of the framework of your average everyday person, particularly because of those density numbers that you shared. And so I think there are, are two things that we seek to do in the book. Um, the first thing is, of course, to define what collective bargaining is, and not just to define it by the unions who implement it, but to literally define the process, this idea that you are you are electing a group of people to represent you to negotiate with the uh, your shared economic stakeholder, most often your direct employer, and that you're basically setting policy for the workplace, which is what a, an agreement is, something that you can then enforce and grieve and renegotiate as conditions change. Um, but one of the things that we try to, to push, you know, once we set that groundwork, is the, the theory that collective bargaining should be expanded to match the needs of modern working people and the environment that they, they operate in. And so to really think about it, um, uh, not just as something that unions do, but to think about it in the context of this is this is how we make everyday decisions, and in that sense, you know, it's not that difficult to to talk to people about. I mean, when you look at particularly where I'm from, like almost everyone is a member of some church or faith institution, and there are committees and decision-making bodies within those institutions, or maybe you're in the local PTA. Like people are used to being engaged in making collective decisions, setting collective standards and practices. And uh, collective bargaining, in some ways, is, is no different. It's what we're actually trying to proliferate throughout all kinds of economic relationships. And just like we wouldn't go door to door on a voter registration drive and tell people, hey, you have the right to elect a senator, uh, we can't just talk to the 90% plus of people who aren't currently members of a traditional labor union and say, hey, you have the right to join a union. We want to be able to say to them, you should have the ability to collectively make decisions and set standards in your workplace, in your industry and sector, in your community, and, and all of the above. And so in the book, we lay out three frameworks for that. Uh, in addition to traditional bargaining, we first talk about expanded forms of traditional bargaining, which is seeing uh, current contract negotiations as a site of struggle, just like you might see a ballot initiative or a vote on election day that the issues that could potentially be discussed in that context, particularly given the role of that industry or that company in the community, that those issues should be topics of negotiation that workers can help. And a great example of that was when we saw uh, teachers in St. Paul, Minnesota, try to negotiate that there couldn't be any deportations during the school year, um, which is not something that's certainly, uh, cert not certainly a mandatory topic of bargaining according to our legal framework, but something that they were really trying to bring into uh, into those negotiations to make bargaining a site of struggle. The second framework is um, really trying to address the way that employment is organized today, whether it's through the fissured economy 
or uh, ultimately recognize that there is an ultimate employer, ultimate profiteer, ultimate benefactor of our labor in many cases. And so trying to expand the frameworks through which uh, working people can negotiate conditions beyond just their direct employer. And it's crazy because companies sign contracts with each other every day, it's a contractor, subcontractors, bankers, whatever. Uh, there's no reason why workers should just have one channel to negotiate standards. If if uh, I work at Walmart and Cerrito works at Hyatt, we should both be able to negotiate with members of the Walton family who lead both companies. Um, and then the last one is what we like to call community-driven strategies. Uh, but really what we're talking about is just applying what we think is a brilliant framework of collective bargaining that the labor movement has, has fine-tuned over the last couple hundred years. Uh, and applying that to other economic relationships. So looking at uh, homeowners or tenants and negotiating with the same corporate landlord or bank, a set of medical debtors negotiating with the same hospital, and trying to set standards, protocols, renegotiate fees, things of that nature as a means of expanding the majority's participation and setting standards in their economic lives. And I want to just say the, the, the last I guess two more points that I'll make on this. The first one is that um, uh, we want to do this not just because it's the right thing to do, not just because uh, we want to build economic power uh, and we want to get more wealth into the hands of everyday people. All of that is true, but that there's a so what of this that we want we want joy. Like those the women who I first encountered in that Kmart struggle so many years ago, the black women who were fighting for dignity and respect to their job, they weren't just fighting for better wages. They were very clearly fighting for a sense of, of respect and uh, value of their contributions that they were making to the company, that that was important to them and how they were seen in the community. And it was important because they wanted to be able to spend more time with their families and doing, you know, everyday things that other people got to do, go to the basketball game, uh, go to a movie. And so that's ultimately, we want to keep the joy and the humans in these stories as well. And it's another reason why we featured uh, uh, so many worker narratives in telling the story. The last thing, uh, and this, is, this very much goes to uh, Sarita's story, which I love, about uh, workers in, in places like Rochester and Cleveland where they they lost access to what, what had been a stable job and, and perhaps had lost access to a union. Um, and, and comparatively, workers, say, in the South who have, have long lost, if they ever had access to some of the 20th century channels for forming a union or voting. Um, you know, one of the ideas that we introduced in the book is this, this idea of a new map. And it's really uh, a, an agitation to not just look at the country in terms of who how people voted for the last president, uh, whether they're blue or red states and that kind of thing, but in fact uh, is an agitation to movement leaders to look at the country in relationship to who has access to 20th century mechanisms for democracy, be it voting or uh, organizing a collective bargaining. And when we look at it that way, it gives us a little information about how to engage people in these communities. The way that we would engage some of the workers in Kodak City in Rochester, especially based on uh, the, this, this idea that they've been left behind, the anger that they have around it, right, would be very different than how we might engage people in, in Alabama. And it's not so much a question of what's more possible, it's actually a question of just where their imagination is. In Rochester, they might have a vision of what they lost and want to get it back. In North Carolina, they might have a vision of, of something that they've never had and perhaps have an appetite for, for building something even more 
uh, provocative that matches our needs today. Um, and so that's just a little bit about how we're trying to think about this, to really think, think about that 90% of people who don't currently have access and how we can reach them in a more sustained way. Well, I want to be conscious of your time, and I really appreciate all that you're doing. And I want to thank you for writing a great book and all the work that you're doing for fighting for a better world. So everyone should go out and buy their copy of The Future We Need, Organizing for a Better Democracy in the 21st Century from Cornell University Press. And this concludes Empathy Media Lab's Harmony of Interest book talks. And always remember, labor, solidarity forever.